Welcome to the Someone to Tell It To podcast. We started Someone to Tell It To in 2012, and all along, our philosophy has been to listen. Because our mission is to cultivate meaningful connections through compassionate listening and to train others to do the same, we thought it might be best to highlight both aspects, listening and training in a podcast. Both listening and training continue to catalyze this global listening movement where someone's voice is being heard, someone is being reminded that they matter, and someone doesn't need to feel alone in whatever they are facing. We will be posting two episodes each month to start. One will highlight training because we can all benefit from learning how to become better listeners. The second will highlight how listening has played a vital role in an individual's journey. We are so excited to share these rich conversations with you. We've spent a lot of time trying to figure out what to call the people we listen to. You know, are they clients, friends, storytellers? Nothing quite fit. So we wanted a name that represented the type of relationship we try to build and the way we value those we listen to. But the fact is we struggled. We struggled to find a single word that could accomplish what we realized, what we needed. So in the end, we were surprised to find the answer that was staring right at us. Someone. Someone with a story to share. Someone who needs a friend. Someone who is grieving, angry, lonely, afraid, or has questions about matters of faith. Someone who simply needs someone to listen. We always hope to establish a mutual relationship between friends who are sharing life's journey together. So that means that you are someone. You have a story worth sharing. You have inherent worth. You deserve to be seen, heard, and known. It also means that we are someone. We have stories of our own. We value knowing, showing up and listening and compassion. We want everyone to know the joy of engaging in meaningful relationships. You'll see us using this refreshed terminology from now on. And when you see it or hear it, we hope it makes you smile. You are someone. According to the Department of Veterans Affairs, Around 496,777 American veterans from the war were estimated to still be alive in September 2018. Our good friend, author, and journalist Tim Madigan, who we interviewed on our very first podcast earlier this year, has written about those psychic residue of combat shatters their golden years. He writes of night terrors, heavy drinking, survivor's guilt, depression, exaggerated startle responses, profound and lingering sadness. Post-traumatic stress disorder wasn't officially named or diagnosed until 1980, basically referring uniquely to those of the Vietnam era. But those of age in the late 1940s would have known something different. Though it was referred to by other names, shell shock, combat fatigue, neuropsychiatric disorders, the toll of World War II 
was hard to miss immediately following the war. Military psychiatric hospitals across the U.S. were full of afflicted soldiers, and so was the press full of terrible stories of the toll of the war took. But the war was quickly overshadowed by Korea, the Cold War, and Vietnam. As much as we may have liked to ignore the effects of that war on soldiers, the signs could not be dismissed, and decades later, the hidden anguish can still remain. Before it's too late, we want to reach beyond the myth and nostalgia of World War II and shine a light on what Tim Madigan states, no matter the war, it means death, disfigurement, and horrors no human is equipped to bear. For so many veterans, it was a real relief to learn about the realities of PTSD. Far too many had felt isolated and crazy and thought it was just them. They didn't want to talk about it. The aftermath of the war was complicated, and it continued to be. Studies showed that the World War II veterans were four times more likely to die by suicide than those their age who had not served in the military. We received this text message last summer from a man who is now another good friend of ours. This is what he wrote. Just finished reading The Old Man in the Sea and realize how his torment was very similar to mine. A struggle to forgive myself and rethinking my once blasphemous attitude and my OCD mindset to force a holy attitude, a mental struggle, not unlike the don't think about the purple elephant in the room. Thomas Fletcher wrote those words. Thomas is a 92-year-old veteran of World War II. He lives in Lewistown, Pennsylvania, near the center of the state. He connected with us at Someone to Tell It To so that he could tell and process his story. He is very special to us. His openness and insightfulness have endeared him to us, and we are proud to call him our friend. Welcome, Thomas. It's so good to have you join us today. Very Nice to be with you people today as well. We are yeah. we are very grateful to have you here. And we're going to start right away and get okay. into this. You have held on to a lot of painful memories for 70 plus years. Can you tell us what the aftermath of the war was like for you? How did it affect your life? What did it do to your relationships? Well, first of all, Michael Thomas... Uh, I don't really consider myself worthy of being called a vet in the sense that I didn't see combat. Uh, my distress didn't come from combat, although I went into the service, uh, went through schooling for to become a radio telegraph operator, and... Uh, the war had ended uh, before I went to Panama with a communications group. Uh, we spent time, I spent time at a uh, 
deactivated B-24 base up in the interior of Panama, a town called David. And at one time, it was a very active B-24 base uh, overseen by the 6th Air Force. They did uh, patrol duty out through the, it's hard to think of this as being the South Pacific, but on that side of the canal zone is the Pacific Ocean. And there were threats of submarine activity there that they would patrol and, if need be, uh, bomb. Uh, However, when I got there, it was a deactivated base, very small uh, complement, 17 enlisted men, five officers. Uh, It was pretty isolated in that we had conveniences. We had a bowling alley. We had a movie every night. But uh, during the day, it was uh, very lonesome, very lonesome. And uh, the old adage, don't do things when you're hangry, angry, lonely, or tired. Halt. Hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Uh, I was lonely. Uh, I wasn't really angry. I was tired. And uh, all of a sudden one day, as I say, this is not combat-related, but uh, I had too much time on my hands to think. And uh, for no reason at all, it's just a sudden attack. I call it a satanic attack, satanic attack. I just, for no reason, start to have blasphemous thoughts. And it, it, it just shocked me mentally. So as time went on, uh, buddies of mine noticed that I was nervous, overstressed, but really I didn't tell anybody why. Really, I was embarrassed, ashamed to even talk about uh, such disgrace. So anyhow, when we got discharged, when I got discharged, everybody, my buddies, would say, well, you're going to feel better, Fletch, when you get home. Well, didn't happen. This thing traveled home with me. But uh, to make a long story short... I got some attention through the VA. I applied for a disability, and I got a 0% disability, which means I could get outpatient medical treatment from time to time. So to make a long story short, about every 10 years or so, this, this thing overwhelms me to the point where I think I can't handle it. And it's hard to not relive those old feelings, regardless of how hard I try. And I try to the degree that I force, uh, I try to force a more positive mindset, but forcing a positive mindset isn't easy. Mm -hmm. It either happens or it doesn't. And that's why uh, I guess I want to say it's just best to rely on God faith in Christ, and let them handle it. And recently, recently being this past year, I was going through very bad times. That's when I was introduced to Tom and Michael and the program. 
I had a niece of mine that knew how I struggled. She said, I wish you could talk to these people I know. And she introduced me to the Tom and Michael group. And uh, we arranged a one-on-one visit one day with them. And seriously speaking, that was a big, big turnaround in my thinking. I, uh, I say that sincerely. A meeting with them started me back on a safe journey, back to clean living, clean thoughts, and I'm very appreciative of that. Very much so, gentlemen. Well, Thomas, thank you for that. You. We 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 really appreciate that as well. We really do. How hard was it for you? Um, to come to terms with the memories that you had and, you know, and your experience from your service in World War II? It was difficult. Uh, I came out of the service in uh, uh, November 28th, I can tell the date exactly, 1946. About a year later, I enrolled in technical school at Temple University. And even there, I struggled. Uh, I was never an outstanding student, but at Temple it was very difficult to concentrate in the classroom and have these thoughts going through my mind, and it was a struggle. It was really a struggle. I managed to graduate, though, and get out in the workaday world, and uh, uh, I always, in the back of my mind, had these struggles. I don't know if you could say OCD or what, but I had to do things in a certain preconceived pattern. (laughs) And if the pattern was disrupted, then I'd struggle with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's If you've never been into a situation like that, it's really, you can't explain it. It's just something that you gotta feel and it's, it's difficult, it's difficult. But I find that surrounding myself with good friends, uh, occupying my mind and body with hobbies or something to distract these thoughts is the way to go. Mm-hmm. And uh, just recently, don't know where it was, I saw it for sure, but it was a uh, retired Navy admiral. And he... Uh, he was in charge of training what the Navy calls, uh, uh, well, I can't think of the term right now, but they go on clandestine assignments underground, so to speak. SEALs, that's the word, Navy mm-hmm. SEALs. And I had to laugh. The uh, Admiral started off his lecture by saying, make your bed in the morning like that, very firm. He said, that's the first thing we train Navy SEALs. Make your bed in the morning because if you do that, even though you don't feel like doing it, once you've done that, you can look and say, hey, uh, it worked. I got this done. And then you're on a positive roll for the day. (laughs) Here not too long ago, I thought of that. 
when I was making my bed. I thought, you know, that's right. But he said, Navy SEALs are trained to keep looking ahead at the mission, concentrate on the mission, and it all starts by the first thing in the morning, make your bed. And if nothing else happens, if the day doesn't turn out to be positive, at least when you come home at night exhausted, you have a nice, neat bed to crawl into. <laughs> we've, heard the, we've heard a similar story. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's a great story. <laughs> Although I must say, for someone like myself, I can't stand making my bed. So, Well, it's a, <laughs> it's a challenge. It's yeah. a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> Thomas, when Michael had read a few moments ago this initial message that you had written to us after having read our second book, yes. do you remember the story about the old man in the sea? Yes, and the thing I remember most about it was, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, he, uh, he was pretty much to himself, but every morning he was on the beach or yep. on the pier or wherever, and he uh, hesitated to talk about things until somebody one day, day by day, drew him out, uh, so to speak. Each day that when they'd see him, he'd give a little more testimony mm-hmm. as to what was bothering. And, and eventually, he was able to discuss this. And uh, that's where I saw myself. Uh, it was almost like I was reading my biography, that particular chapter. Mm-hmm. The, the whole book was very meaningful to me, but that chapter in particular jumped out at me because I thought, that's me. Yeah. That's me. For those who are listening today, just to give you a little bit of context about the story, my family, this is Tom, has historically went to a town in New Jersey named Ocean Grove. And we've had a, a beach home in our in our family for, for decades. And our family, every time we go to the beach, we go to the exact same spot and we sit underneath a pier because it's one of the few shaded spots on the entire beach. And one day I was with my family and an elderly gentleman sitting up on the pier started calling out to me and it took me a moment and then I started to engage him in conversation and realized he was looking to have a conversation. And our conversation quickly went from surface level to deep in a matter of moments. And I think I, as I was writing it, I used the word camouflaged, that the man in so many ways was camouflaged from the rest of the world. And people just weren't paying attention. And it wasn't that he didn't expect to be paid attention to he just no one was engaging him and so that day I took the the moment to engage him in conversation I went up on the pier sat down next to him and started to learn more about his life and his story and again our conversation went to deep in a matter of moments where he talked about his time in the service just by asking him a, a few a few simple questions and just being present just showing up well long story short is that our relationship continued the entire week because I went back to his, he invited me to his home later in the week and I went and sat on his porch and he just started sharing more and more details about his life and his story, especially about his time in the service and the ramifications of what that um, caused in his life after he had returned from, from the war. And uh, it was just such a sacred moment that I will never forget. And I was so grateful to 
to him for giving me the opportunity to tell his story. He wanted his story to be told. And uh, I tried to maintain a relationship and a friendship with him, but he uh, actually passed. The, the next year I went back to visit him and um, he didn't have good eyesight. So I, try, I wrote him a couple letters and he couldn't write back. And then the next summer we went back to the same spot and I looked for him and I knocked on his door and he wasn't, he wasn't alive any longer. And I spoke with one of his neighbors who gave me some updates. Um, but anyways, that just, I'm glad that you connected with that story. It's one of my favorites to tell. Yeah, I did very much, Thomas, very much so. Yeah. And that's why we write, <clears throat> excuse me, that's why we write these stories, because we, we know that not everyone can relate to or find themselves in every story, because all of our lives are, we have different experiences. But we, w- the hope is that, it, that at least one story in each of our books will connect with, with everyone who reads the book, that there might be a story there that, that reminds someone of their yes. own situation, and to remind them that they're not alone but at the same time at the same time we are all normal Mm -hmm. right and even in our uniqueness there is so much we have in common right and that's what that's the message that we're trying to convey to people and and the fact that you understand that and that we could convey that to you and it helped you you have no idea how that fills our hearts with with joy well don't you see (laughs) that's the very thing uh, that that one phrase, normal, is what uh, sort of started my interest in mm-hmm. the group here. And, uh, yeah, I can remember that vividly, vividly. Oh. Thomas, and do you think— it was a sense of relief. Do you think that that's a big part of the reason why people don't talk about some of the hard things from their lives is because they don't feel normal? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, they don't feel normal. Uh, they're embarrassed about it. They think, boy, nobody's ever did or thought what I did. And uh, so that's part of the problem is you hesitate to speak to anybody about it. And the only person you're talking to is yourself. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> when you're talking to yourself, if you have problems, you're asking the wrong person because the person you're talking to is you with the problem. So <laughs> uh, I don't know what I'm saying here, but uh, you just essentially can't help yourself. You need somebody that's at this point in time is more stable in their rationale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Do, do you do you think that in when you – got out of the war when you were discharged uh, from the service that we've gathered from something, some things you've said that people weren't necessarily often interested in hearing about your, your struggles or your feelings. Is that true? That's, that's true. Yes. Uh, Now in my case, I saw, I saw people, Veterans with real struggles. I mean, real struggles. Mm-hmm. Physical struggles. Uh, missing arms, legs, uh, things like that. So I didn't even consider myself worthy of being considered uh, having a problem. You know, mm-hmm. when I looked at people like that, mine was just a mental attitude that came about 
through being isolated, if that's the word, mm-hmm. uh, for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that th- your perception of that was is pretty common among a lot of people that if they don't have a physical problem necessarily, haven't lost an arm or a leg or they haven't had a, a severe wound or, or you, you've mentioned several times even as you began that, well, you really weren't, combat wasn't, wasn't the thing that that did this right that that was part of your story part of your history and we've often over time dismissed the mental and emotional wounds that we have and feel that as if they're not as important yes that's and what we want to say it's normal (laughs) to have those kinds of feelings and and that when we have emotional and mental wounds, they are they are just, just as, as significant, oh, just yes. as important, oh, and yeah. we don't want to diminish that. We want to say that whether it's a physical problem or or one that's more emotional, both matter. are serious, yeah. and and they matter. Have you had interactions with other veterans who were in similar? A similar state as yourself? No, I I didn't. I never did. Uh, <clears throat> there again, getting back to when this happened, I got to say this: the, uh, my close buddies, I was never ridiculed, uh, if that's the right way to say it. It was obvious I was having problems because uh, just by my attitude and actions. But none of them were ever disrespectful. They they were always there for me, and uh, uh, so I, they accepted me for the way things were. And when I came home, of course, nobody knew of this struggle. But uh, when I I did the, the first time at Temple, when I uh, the VA authorized some outpatient treatment. Uh, Here again, some things it's not good to have good memories of. Some Mm. are. I do have good memory for things. The doctor's name, it was a woman, Dr. Shepard. Dr. Shepard. She was a psychiatrist uh, on staff at Temple University Hospital. And I went to her first. The VA sent me to her. And uh, again, see, I was I was struggling with, uh, I never told her the whole story. Again, it's, it was to me, it was embarrassing. It was, uh, it was just something you didn't talk about. It was so bad. So uh, I don't know what I might have told her, but it was always some cover-up, never totally telling the whole story. And, of course, if you don't tell the whole story, a psychologist or psychiatrist can't help you yeah. because they <laughs> they don't know what to work with. We use the line, I think, in the old man in the sea story that people don't heal if they don't first reveal. Yes, I think now that I recall that. Yeah. Yes. What were you thinking of as you were talking about Dr. Shepard? There's some biblical imagery about Shepard. A shepherd in, in scripture, right? Yes. A good shepherd. Yes. Yeah, that we can tell everything to. Yes, that, uh, I hadn't considered that, but yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, 
symbolic. Yeah, yeah Dr. Shepard. <laughs> yeah, as soon as you said her name, it, I think it, for both of us, it conjured up, well, oh, that's great imagery there. Because yeah. uh, she was really a shepherd for you. Yes. In, in, that's in interesting. I, 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 I'm just now thinking of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, <laughs> very symbolic. Yes. And maybe if I had had at the time uh, the rationale to think about that, (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't have struggled so long. Hmm. Yeah. What were some of the effects of not being able to tell your story? Oh, nervousness, being jittery, uh, uh, probably showing physical signs that something was bothering me. Like friends of mine would say, Tom, what's on your mind? What's, what are you, what's, what are you thinking about? Things like that. And of course, wanting to pass it off is not easy. I would say, oh, that's nothing, nothing. It's all right. And it wasn't all right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When, you know, you know, in, in the nineteen forties. In fifties, sixties, seventies, uh, the term uh, PTSD wasn't wasn't no. a term. It wasn't. No. It Never, didn't. It n- wasn't something that was defined or identified. Was it a relief to you? You know, statistics or history will show around nineteen eighty was when that began to be more of a an understanding that post traumatic stress syndrome was a real thing. And and especially in this case related to the Vietnam era, right? And what what soldiers went through there, was it a relief to you to hear that term, and to realize that 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 helped to de- define you? Yes, too. Yes, it was because at the time I was really struggling with this situation. PSD was a a term that hadn't been brought about yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, things like, I remember things like war nerves or combat fatigue. But here again, the, just the term combat fatigue didn't apply to me because mm-hmm. I wasn't in combat. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that <laughs> made me feel all the more guilty. People were feeling sorry for me. And I'm thinking, why are you feeling sorry for me? I'm not a combat veteran. So, yes, but then in recent years, this PTSD term came into being, and I hadn't really thought of that until about a year ago when uh, I had flu, pneumonia, and run down and was hospitalized to get over it, that again, I started to recall these bad old memories. And it was at that time that my family doctor and I hadn't, trust me, I hadn't disclosed the full story to anybody, to anybody, until that day in the hospital. And, and once I got it out, it was easier uh, to live with. But my doctor right away said, well, you have PTSD. And it never occurred to me. And then r- right about that same time is when I, talked to Thomas and Michael was after that and uh, they reinforced what my medical doctor had suggested Mm -hmm. so uh, yes I was relieved to 
to hear that. Very much so. Let's talk a little bit more about that initial conversation that we had with you. Yeah. And it was such a meaningful one for us. And how did, how did that conversation change things for you? And what about it do you believe was kind of a catalyst for change? Well, uh, the one-on-one meeting when we I met with you in Harrisburg, we sat down and talked specifics and uh, the listening, that's, that's the key word here, listening. By virtue of the fact that both you gentlemen were listening and not criticizing, you know, but truly listening and uh, putting yourself, I'm assuming, only you know this, in my place. You, you were very good at that. that. And I felt comfortable in talking to you because I thought here are two individuals that understand, truly understand what, what I'm <laughs> thinking or trying to say. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's very true. It was a relief when I met with you all. And I'm thankful for my niece <laughs> because she is the one that uh, alerted me to this uh, someone to tell it to group. She said, uh, Uncle Thomas, you ought to see these fellows. I, maybe they could help you. And she gave me the uh, email or whatever to contact them. And uh, I, th- I thank her very much for what she did. Well, we're grateful to her, too, because uh, we got a new friend. (laughs) Thank you very much. Out of that introduction. Thank you. And, yeah, it is just so, it's so good to hear that you can express and affirm the power of listening. Because we believe, we, you know, it's it's hard to describe how how it works exactly, but the fact is we hear this over and over from people that they just are simply being heard begins to heal is that how you feel yes. too that it, it yes. that it changes yeah. something knowing that somebody's listening not judging not criticizing not trying to fix you or tell you what to do or how you should feel or think but simply acknowledging how you do feel and reminding you that it is normal. Yes. Um, it's incredible how powerful that is. And it, it's often dismissed uh, as by, by many people. They don't realize that it can be that in many ways simple. But, but it is. Well, again, I certainly appreciate all that you've done for me. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. What would you? What were some messages that you would want to convey to other veterans who may be listening today? Well, it's hard to say. Uh, as Michael just said a while ago, we're all unique, and I don't know what the other people's problems are. But I could tell tell them this: that again, the word normal that while I don't know your situation, it's normal that you have anxiety about this or that. I I don't know. That's about the only thing I could tell them. And, of course, uh, 
their war is a different type of war. It's, I don't think I'm qualified to really give them any uh, message on that. We would. It's uh, an important we, message. We, we would. Um, how do we? I want to say this. We would gently challenge you about that because we do think you are qualified. Well, you are because you you have experienced war, and it doesn't matter which war it is or was. Um, and of course, every war itself is unique. But we also believe, and this is where the common part it comes in that that it's very common, no matter no matter what in a situation like that to be afraid to be lonely yeah. to be uncertain to be anxious to be you know uh, you know just uh, you know what i want to say to to not know you know to understand all that all that this is about and 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 to, for those things to linger they can linger for a lifetime oh yes those feelings and thoughts and and concerns, and I think to have someone who has lived with this for seventy plus years, there's a lot of wisdom to be learned from someone like you. There really, there really is, and that's one reason why we wanted to, to interview you today, to to be able to share some of that wisdom that you have, and to help others who who are going through that in their own way, to know again. It's normal. Yes, that's a good word, normal. Uh, let me back up to something you said a while ago. I don't feel qualified. The, the newer veterans are in different type wars. Uh, I'm going to use an expression, and don't take this the wrong way. World War II was a popular war. Uh, the word popular. I, I, it wasn't, I don't mean it was great. It was the thing that everybody was involved in. Mm -hmm. There was no question we had to be there. So it was a war that uh, everybody knew was something had to be. I mean, it just happened. Whereas the wars today now, there's so much uh, political differences as we shouldn't be there and this, that, the other thing that these fellows coming back today aren't, how do I want to say this, aren't greeted the way we were in World War II. World War II, when we came home, everybody was a hero, a buddy, you know. Mm -hmm. And in today's society, that's not always the case. So a lot of these, these newer veterans are struggling with acceptance that uh, oh, maybe we shouldn't have even been there. Mm-hmm. That's a very good point, and we, we do want to point. acknowledge that. And in some of our research, as we were, we were reading some things about PTSD and about the war and some statistics and things, we actually read some things that, that, that talked about that, how World War II was, a, as, you're, as you're saying, a popular war, yeah. that there was, there was pretty clear cut for most people right. what, the thing, what they felt they needed to do, and, and that when— when most of you came back, you were heroes. That, that's how you were treated. And you're absolutely right, particularly with Vietnam on, that wasn't the case. And so there is a difference. So you, you, there, there's, that is a very good point. Right. It's a very good point. Yeah. Another thing I might inject, uh, I laugh, I shouldn't laugh about this. As I said, I was a radio telegraph operator 
in the, the Army Airways communication system. Uh, we were functioned under the Air Transport Command, and we were never assigned to a numbered Air Force. Uh, we were attached. Sixth Air Force uh, oversaw the Caribbean activity. So we were only attached to the Sixth Air Force. And uh, as radio operators, uh, well, we operated uh, about 30 words a minute in radio code. And that can be stressful. And my buddies, to get back to how did your buddies react when you had these uh, anxiety things, and they would say, oh, Fletcher, just code happy. That was a catch term, code happy, that was neither here nor there. But I just thought I'd bring that up. What did they mean by that term? Well, that the copying code, it takes concentration, and it becomes automatic. When you hear a code letter, you just translate it into a letter, and it's there. And uh, it can get stressful listening the code off and on all day. So that was a term, code happy, just, you know, mind-boggling. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, it certainly is. You, um, you've been very open about the fact that you've, you've been seeing a counselor, you know, for, for, for years and years. Yes. How... How has that helped you, you know, with your relationships and with, and, and with life? I mean, the, you've been very open about that. And, and you know, what, what were the positive benefits? Well, the positive benefits in almost every case. As I said, this, this uh, situation triggers itself with severity, in my case, about every 10 years. And everyone I've ever had is to talk with uh, medically, uh, has left me know, again, this word normal, left me know in so many terms that it was normal, maybe not using that word, but uh, feeling out where I was coming from. And everyone, uh, everyone I talked to got me on a path where I was forgetting about me getting active in something, keeping busy, mm-hmm. uh, keep involved, and have something to look forward to every day. And uh, really, right now, I've, I've got so much stuff going on on my plate. That, <laughs> You're a busy that, man. That's true. Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. busy. Well, can you Don't, tell us what some of those things are? Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, historically, I go to the library every day. Uh, I, we're allowed two hours on the computer at the library. And while I have a tablet at home, it's not like the library where I have access to a printer if I want some. So that's a ritual. I know every day I've got two hours there. Well, that takes care of the morning pretty much until I have lunch. Then lunchtime, I might snap the TV on a while and look at a few things. Then I'm out again. Uh, Don't ask me what I've done. I'll go to the railroad station, enjoy watching trains going by, or maybe just uh, hang out with a friend. And before I know it, it's nighttime. Mm-hmm. It's, it's dinner time. I think, man, where's the day going? Right now, we're in almost in mid-March. 
And I can't tell you where this first three months of the year have gone. Mm-hmm. And again, I attribute this a lot to you, gentlemen, because it was, uh, when was it I first got with you about, was it around July? It was the mid-summer, last mid-summer last mid-summer, year. Mid-summer, yeah. And uh, thank God I've been on a positive roll. Michael always has a much better memory than I do. I can't remember what I had for dinner last night most days. Could you talk a little bit about the link between feeling normal and forgiveness and kind of forgiving yourself? Do you ever see a link there? Uh, There's a link in that I think a lot of people have had things that they did or thought that uh, they never talked about, or if they did, after they've confessed it, they definitely feel better. There's a link between the link between normal and this that we've all done something wrong that we had to confess, not necessarily to a person, but to the Lord, and uh, that in itself is a relief. And so th- th- that, th- that is normal. That is normal. That I think everybody that goes to the Lord for a confession is going to feel better. Uh, that's normal. That's the normal part of it. Yeah. Yeah, we just see a strong link between the two. Yes. Where we all need to get to the place where we can just forgive ourselves and that, just give ourselves we we call it, often call ourselves permission givers giving ourselves permission just to be human. Yes. Yes, that's well said. Humans that have doubts, that have insecurities, that have fears, that have anxieties, that has have loneliness and and just being able to forgive ourselves that we are who we are and we can't change that and uh and that helps. Uh, let's recall something you said different, uh, different times in my life when I've gotten medical treatment. (laughs) I remember one psychiatrist in particular said, now you understand this. I didn't tell him the details of, uh, my anxiety, but, uh, he would, he looked at me one day, he said, Boy, oh boy, don't you think you're something? God forgave you and you won't forgive yourself. Isn't that something that you think you're bigger than God? Oh, nice. <laughs> and, uh, wow. I just happened to think of that. How did that make you feel? Well, I thought, thought I had to smile and laugh, <laughs> and so did he. He said, Boy, you are something. He said, Yeah. So uh, that made things uh, appear different. That had an impact. Yes. Yeah. We all need if that God message. forgives you, who are you to say I'm still going to beat up in myself? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thomas, maybe you could talk for a few minutes about that, about your faith journey and how that's affected you. Oh, yeah. Well, and changed you. We, uh, I grew up in a Christian home and atmosphere. Uh, went to church, Sunday school, and all. So I was preconditioned when I was in the service. Now, Hear this. There's another thing. In the service, I was introduced to a new world that I didn't see as a young kid. Uh, 
I had a protected environment, grew up here in a small town. Didn't, hadn't seen all the vices of life till I got in the service. <laughs> and then it's a different world, different language, different language it's used, different cultures that you see, and it's hard to readjust your thinking to that kind of a environment that you're in at the time. So that in itself was a struggle, and uh, uh, I just thank God that I had enough upbringing that I could think through some of these situations, or I could maybe be worse off than I ever was. Mm-hmm. Well, it's obvious that your faith is very important to you, because um, for our listeners, we are actually speaking from and having this interview in Thomas's church. Yes. He wanted to meet us in his church uh, in order to have this conversation. And that says a lot about how much your faith and your values mean to you. And Thomas even showed us this morning uh, before the um, interview here uh, the baptismal font from which he was baptized 90 years ago. <laughs> and um, that's very special. And knowing that you have a foundation, a foundation of faith that, that helps to carry you through. And it's also important to, to acknowledge, which you are, that even when we have a strong faith in God or you know, in you know, a certain set of values, that doesn't make us immune to having struggles mm-hmm. or problems, does it? No, it doesn't, it doesn't make us talk. immune to being ever, never being afraid or never being... Right, you know, anxious right. or doubting ourselves or our abilities, and and we want people to understand that 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 again, this is going to be the word uh, for the for the day here. Normal, yes. that it's very normal, no matter who we are, no matter what we believe or don't believe, that we all at times struggle, and we all get scared, we all get insecure, we all are doubting. Uh, in one thing or another, and we we just simply want to know, and you are helping, you're helping us to share this message, Thomas, that it's normal, that it's very, very normal. Well, thank you, Michael and Thomas. Uh, getting back to struggles that, uh, that we go through, uh, if I... When you say background in the church and feel comfortable here, there are a lot of people that are, in my opinion, better Christians than I am. However, uh, I I think this too, that uh, that if I if it didn't uh, if it, what I went through didn't bother me if I had a cavalier attitude, then I would have something to worry about. (laughs) In other words, I'm concerned that I'm disappointing Christ. Mm -hmm. And if I didn't feel, if I wasn't anxious about that, then I wouldn't be. Uh, I don't know what I'm trying to say there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But... uh, well, the one thing Jesus wasn't is he wasn't apathetic. Yes, yes. He felt deeply for others. Yeah. And that was what drew 
such deep connections among the people that he served and ministered to. So you're certainly not apathetic. Okay. Well. And hence you're able to form connections with people as you're doing with our listeners today. Oh, thank you very much, Tom. Yeah. Thomas, you've read our book, Someone to Tell to Moved with Compassion. What did you learn from the book and what about it spoke to you? Well, every chapter talked to me, first of all. In every chapter, I saw me, but in particular, the old man of the sea. Mm -hmm. I mean, that just... More more than any other. I thought, these guys are reading my mail. (laughs) (laughs) It it was so so fitting. You're attributing powers to us we don't have. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, uh, literally, every chapter had something in that was applicable to me. That's just so good to hear because as I'm reflecting back on the gentleman who gave me permission to tell his story at the end of the, the, the story as I wrote it, I wrote about the fact that he wanted me to tell his story so that other people wouldn't suffer as he had for so long for holding secrets and holding things inside. And, um, you know, some of it had to deal with his time in the service, but then there were a lot of other things that he was holding on to his grief for losing a child. And then he became an alcoholic and his marriage fell apart. And then after that, he talked very intimately with a, a very relevant subject matter that we're dealing with in the news right now, where he was abused by a, a priest and he had not forgiven the priest, nor had he forgiven himself as a child for what had occurred, even though he had no control over what occurred. And he just had never talked about it. And so he had just had held on to it, and it affected so many of his relationships. And, and he just, uh, it wasn't until that moment he finally felt comfortable enough with me. And, and um, what a privilege. But because he told his story and wanted it to be told, you connected with it and, Absolutely. and and you're probably connecting with a lot of listeners today who are listening by tell by you telling your story and that's I, that's how that's how this should be working Absolutely wow. and and we get so so many of the stories we tell all of the to- stories we tell from people they want their stories to be told because they want to redeem their pain okay or their brokenness right are there just difficult circumstances, they want to be able to allow those circumstances and what they've gone through to be used to help other people to and for help other people to know they're normal yes, and that they're not normal, alone and, that, and they're not alone. And by you being so willing to be open about your story and your struggles today, you're doing the same thing. You're redeeming it so that others can know they're not alone. Right. That's key. That is a key thing. Exactly. We're going to end our time together. Our our fourth podcast interview is with William Paul Young, who wrote the book The Shack. And if we remember correctly, we actually shared this quote in our interview with him. And I shared it in the beginning of The Old Man in the Sea. And this is what William Paul Young wrote. He said, pain has a way of clipping our wings (laughs) and keeping us from being able to fly. And if left unresolved for very long, you can almost forget 
that you were ever created to fly in the first place. Yeah, that's a mouthful of words. That's really, uh, yeah. Poetic. Poetic. Yes, it is. Very poetic. So for anyone who's listening today, we want to help you resolve your pain because we know that you've been created to fly as Thomas has been created to fly, as we've been created to fly. And uh, we don't want you to forget that you were created to fly. So thank you, Thomas, for being here. Thank you for sharing well, thank, your story. We're thank you, gentlemen. So I, privileged. Yes. I appreciate the opportunity. Thomas Fletcher, you, um, you are an inspiration to us, and we value and love you very much. We are so grateful you are our friend. And we know that you are making a difference. And for everyone who hears this, you will touch their lives and their hearts. And we want to thank you for that. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And for all of our listeners, thank you for listening today. You can learn more at someonetotellitto.org. And be sure to follow us on the podcast app. And if you could really do us a favor and give us five stars, that would be very, very helpful. Have a great day.